Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 138 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. I've missed you over the past couple of weeks. I've missed you as well. We had some good guests, but it's great to have you back. I know, but as always, we're getting good feedback from people about uh, the other guests on the show, so maybe yeah. that should happen more often. I totally agree. <laughs> Um, before we always, uh, excuse me, before we begin, as always, uh, just wanted to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on February 24th. Uh, so we'll run through this really quick and then get to, uh, probably the main meat of it that people want to hear is, uh, you know, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. Sure. Um, S&P 500 index down 5.18% for the month and down 10.17% for the year. The Dow down 5.6% for the month and down uh, 8.7% for the year. The NASDAQ composite index uh, down 8% for the month and down 12% for the year. IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index down 1.6% for the month and down 10.97% for the year. Uh, Vanguard International ETF down 3.77% for the month and down 6.5% for the year. Three-year T-bill yielding 0.23%, the two-year Treasury yielding 1.6%, and the 10-year Treasury yield is sitting at 2%. Um, obviously, big news uh, from this past week, Matt, is the market is focused on determining the economic fallout of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, you know, this is a very, I think, fluid situation right now where, you know, yesterday was different from today, and I'm sure tomorrow is going to be different from today. So um, as of yesterday, it was, you know, invasion, military operations. Today, people are saying that the capital is going to get taken over. So what do we make of this? You know, my, my two cents is we got to take a step back and think, how is this going to affect the stock market? And stock market movement, a lot of it is predicated on on revenue and, and actual earnings of these companies that we own. So I think people need to take a hard look and think, how is this really going to affect the investments that I own and their profitability and their revenue? And I think once people start kind of walking down that rabbit hole, they're going to figure out that a lot of what's going on, and I'm not trying to minimize the uh, humanitarian impact of, of what's going on, but at the end of the day, how it, much it's going to affect XYZ companies' actual profits probably is a lot different from how their stocks have been acting lately. Mm -hmm. There's a dislocation between you know, the perception of the state of the economy or the state of the world than actual underlying performance. Now, you're going to have things that are going to be more sensitive to this. So whether it's going to be investments that have a lot of exposure to their revenue to Europe, that's going to have a lot bigger impact than a company that has a lot of their exposure to the U.S. 
So again, I look at it from the economic side of the equation, from how it's going to affect these stocks. Short term, you're going to have a lot of volatility and emotion trading in the market. And then as the dust settles, that's when the fundamentals come back and people start really assessing is it going to affect the things that I own? Right, and I think people were a little shocked with yesterday's market action, where you know uh, we opened down, you know, two to three percent, depending on what index you were looking at, and then you know these things reversed throughout the day and kept getting stronger and stronger, and all the major indexes indexes finished, you know, well into the green for the end of the day. Yeah, I want to say the intraday reversal from the very, very bottom for the NASDAQ was about 6.7%. Yeah, that's a massive, massive move. And I think and I don't want to get too far ahead of kind of the, the news cycle that I think is going to happen over the next couple of weeks. But at some point, I think the question is going to be raised. How much did the market discount? uncertainty in January and February, uncertainty related to the Fed, uncertainty related to inflation and supply chain. And I know during this podcast, we're going to talk about some of those items. But now you can lump it in and say, okay, well, how much have these stocks have discounted? Now you can add Russia, Ukraine uncertainty. How much of these stocks already priced that in? Yeah, and my argument, which I think I'm going to make here in a little bit is it a lot. <laughs> yeah. And when you see those types of move like yesterday, I mean, it kind of made me think, you know, what does the market not like? It does not like uncertainty and pricing that in is very hard for the market to do. And that's what really started the sell off in January was the uncertainty surrounding the Fed. If I were to be critical of the Fed year to date, where I really think they failed is in communicating their thoughts and guidance on rate rises at the beginning of the year. And that vacuum allowed people on Wall Street to come out and provide very bold predictions on rate rises this year, seven, eight rate rises. And as people started to price in all oh, that, that's a possible scenario. That's what started to sell off at the beginning of the year. You fast forward to today. Now you can lump in, you know, Ukraine and Russia to this basket of things that are there the market's uncertain about and i think when you start looking at that people might start to realize market and these stocks might price a lot of this stuff in already mm -hmm. yeah i like what you said i think a lot of the selling that has taken place over the past couple of weeks is very emotion driven very emotion you know driven. i think we're starting to get to the point where the selling you know has gotten to the point where it's it's very disconnected from these individual companies it's not that there's necessarily anything wrong a company could have i was just talking to a client the other day and he works for a publicly traded company. He was like, Mark, we just had record earnings and record revenues, and they sold our stock off by 10%. And I'm like, <laughs> it's just a disconnect. It's fear selling. It has nothing to do with the company. No, it doesn't. And I think, you know, what you're going to find is the market, people like to think the market's efficient, right? This is why, you know, the indexers, people who are really dedicated to indexing will say, oh, you know, the market's efficient. Look at the action just year to date, it's not efficient. And we are not gonna go away anytime soon from the emotion of fear and greed dominating the markets. And right now, fear is dominating this market. And could it be irrational 
that people are completely, there are people out there I know who are probably liquidating their portfolio over short-term events. And then I think, again, as the dust settles, you know, several weeks from now or months from now, and you're really looking at how that's going to impact earnings, my fear is a lot of these people will end up buying back in at a lot higher prices. That's my fear. Yeah, again, and it's not that, you know, not that, again, from a humanitarian standpoint, this is this tragic. It's going to be tragic, and there's going to be lives lost, Absolutely. and no one wants that to happen. But, you know, it, if you're... And I don't mean to sound uh, insensitive when I say this. If you've been looking for a sell-off for the past two years, here it is, right? Here's your fat pitch. Not yep. saying that it can't go lower from here, but we're more than 10% off the highs now. Yep. Haven't had that in a while. Nope. You know, fear presents opportunity. And, you know, it's part of our jobs. And I think it's everybody, you know, who is the DIY investor. It's part of your job to set emotion aside and humanitarian aspects aside and say, what do I need to do right now? That's right, because when people are making those emotional decisions to sell, the psyche of that decision for them is this is going to continue. This is not going to get better. This is going to get a lot worse. Is that possibility? Absolutely. But it's like that any day in life, mm -hmm. you know? So if you start really thinking longer term about it, you know, people, most investors aren't putting money into stocks that they need in a month. Mm -hmm. Okay. Or right. even six months. Right. You got to be looking at those timelines. And if you're looking for an entry point, as you were kind of indicating is now the ultimate bottom could Maybe. be, could not be, but you're probably in the vicinity after this sort of correction. And my perception of underlying fundamentals are still pretty darn good. Right. Right. And again, it's another it's another good time to, you know, to have a plan where, you know, if you're one of those people that is waiting for a sell off, you know, you should have a plan that, you know, every 10 percent you put more money to work it goes down 10 more percent, put money to work or 5 percent or whatever that yeah, is, whatever number is, or else you're never going to get yourself emotionally to be able to do it because you always think it can go lower. That's right. So no, I'm um, glad we addressed that off the get go. Yeah. Um, last thing, um, piece of positive news, Matt, Q4 GDP was revised higher to 7% from the original estimate of 6.9%. And, uh, this past week's initial jobless claims came in lower than expected, uh, at 232,000 versus 240,000 estimates. So, yeah. I mean, again, my theory is in order for inflation and the supply chain to improve, the key is employment. Mm -hmm. And what I want to see is when this employment number comes out for February and March, I want to see at least 400,000 new jobs. I would love to see that. And I think we're going to continue to dig out of this backlog, which will have a direct correlation to inflation. Mm -hmm. yeah. My two cents. Yeah. Um, first thing I had this week, Matt, was a, a tweet by Alvaro Alvideo. And uh, he tweeted this chart, and I'll have Jenna post it onto our, our YouTube page, or you can check it out on our show notes um, at Jessup Wealth on Twitter or Jessup Wealth Management on Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, so he showed uh, five charts, Matt, and um, he tweeted, again, he tweeted by the invasion. And he showed previous invasions and how the S&P 500 has reacted to that. 
So the five different um, invasions he he portrays here with the chart of the S&P 500 during those times is the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, Afghanistan War, Iraq War, and the Crimean Crisis. Okay. The point here that I want to make is that similar events to this in the past have not necessarily caused the market to fall apart. And would anyone have thought that previous wars would coincide with stock market gains? I would argue no. Most people know. Most people would be like, this is bad for the stock market. Yeah, because I think what they're thinking is through the lens of a consumer, Though consumers might pull back on some spending, the industrial side of it ramps up big time. Mm -hmm. And so I think rotation, right? Yes. They look at through the lens of the consumer rather than the other positive economic effects. Right. So an example, you know, the Vietnam War, Gulf War, Iraq War and Crimean crisis, you know, it all coincided with stock market gains. Afghanistan War, the market continued to move lower. Yeah. Um, the I, other other point I want to make here, Matt, is that like we kind of touched on earlier, in most of these examples, there was selling before the invasion that's in the right. S&P 500. Some telegraphing. Yeah. Weakness like we've seen over the past two months. So if you look at these charts prior to the invasion, what's highlighted in gray, there was some stock market selling I, similar to what we've had. Absolutely. Okay. So the question, and I have my opinion on it, but I think it is already this Russia-Ukraine crisis is already baked into stock prices. I think that if you want to sell now, you already missed the opportunity and you should have done it earlier in February or in January, because doing it now, I think, is going to cause more harm than good, because we have to remember that the market is always forward looking and I believe this stuff has already been priced in. You make a great, great point, and I absolutely agree with that. I mean, at, you're at the time, especially with the market's reaction yesterday, all of this uncertainty outside of Russia, Ukraine, again, add the Fed in, add the inflation supply chain employment, all this was really starting to, to hurt equity prices year to date. Mm-hmm. And the market does a good job of overshooting usually. It overly prices in negativity. And that's what causes these dramatic rebounds, Mm -hmm. these V-shaped rebounds. And I'm in the camp that a lot of this uncertainty, because remember, at the end of the day, it's all about earnings. And I think that a lot of these companies underlying are doing very good. Mm -hmm. And there'll be areas, geographic areas around the world that'll be more hit in their economic activity, i.e. Europe. But big picture, I'm just not seeing the sell-off in these prices equaling most likely the hit to either the revenue or profits. I think there's a disconnect, and I think the market's gone too far in general. And as the dust settles, there's an immense amount of cash on the sidelines. And just like we kind of saw into the close yesterday, we'll see it in a bigger picture. You know, people might not think we could see panic buying anytime soon. I beg to differ. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, and we can't rule it out that it's going to continue to get worse. You it know, absolutely a, a could. development that would not be good, in my opinion, for the global economy is if China 
took this as an opportunity to do something with Taiwan. Yes, I think that would that would be a game changer. That would not. Yeah, that yeah. would not be good. And I, I you know, because everyone, you know, we get, you know, flack for always being super rah rah positive here. That's one thing that that That's, would not be good. That would be massive risk off. Yeah. Um, next is uh, a article that was written in the Wall Street Journal uh, titled AT&T sets Warner Media spinoff plan and lowers its dividend. So AT&T said it would roughly half its dividend payout and divest itself of its Warner Media division through a spinoff. Hmm. After the spinoff, AT&T said it expects to pay an annual per share dividend of about one dollar and eleven cents down from its most recent $2.08 level. The new payout would cost the company just under $8 billion a year, down from the roughly $15 billion paid out in 2021. AT&T is one of the most widely held U.S. stocks, and the company has historically offered one of the largest regular dividend payouts on the market. Based on Tuesday's closing price, it had an 8.52% dividend yield. All, and, you know, this is a thing that I want to come across, and we've talked about it before, so I don't want to beat a dead horse again, but you always got to be beware of this stuff, right? So dividends are never guaranteed no matter how good they look on paper. And if dividend yields look too good to be true, they usually are. That's right. I mean, when you start to see relative to whatever interest rate environment that we're in, you start to see those dividends get that high. The market is telling you something. The market is telling you that that dividend is not sustainable. Yep. Okay. Because if it were, the stock price wouldn't be where it's at. Mm -hmm. That's just the reality of it. Right. Okay. Now, what I will say is that historically, companies that pay a higher dividend tend to be a more mature company in their life cycle. They tend to have limited growth opportunities. So in order to appease their shareholders, they return any excess earnings in the form of that dividend, right? Mm -hmm. But when you have companies in these mature cycles that have competitive threats against their main business like AT&T has, I mean, they cut their dividend a year ago, I think, or like 18 months ago. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you really kind of have to question, is there going to be another because you might look at it and say, well, you know, okay, they, they cut it to paying out $8 billion a year or $1.11 a share, cuts that dividend in half. Yeah, four, four and a quarter is still a good number. They could cut it again. Yeah, they got, they are, that's an example of a company that's, that is just falling. Debt ridden. Oh, so it's falling hard, right? And, I mean, you're talking over $100 billion a debt. Yeah, and in a good way, I mean, for this example, it's like, okay, look at the company's earnings and look what they're paying out in their dividend, right? Can they? And the question you have to ask is, did their earnings cover their dividend? And if not, the dividend's going to get cut eventually, yeah. right? And the same with interest payments, you know? does their Are their earnings covering what their interest payments are? And the same thing, like, that's not healthy, right? Yeah, I mean, think of it also this way. They got to service that debt. They have to appease their shareholders. And they'll, oh, in addition, I got to have some money to stave off these competitive threats that I'm now seeing. Mm -hmm. People are taking my clients. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting they're, situation. They're, they're fighting a multi-front war. Yeah, and I just encourage people. I would say, you know, focus on companies that are that are now increasing their dividends to 
you know, their argument is, you know, to combat inflation, more increasing dividends to reward shareholders. Focus on those companies because companies now that are increasing their dividend, even though it's going to be a smaller yield than an AT&T, my opinion, it's worth it. Yeah. And so to, to kind of round this out, I mean, even though Mark and I are appearing you know, negative on this specific example. This is not a recommendation for or against AT&T because as we were talking about the market discounting this, the market might have overly discounted what we're, what we're saying. Mm -hmm. And you know, this might be a good entry point in the name. Right. Right. So that's what makes the market. Right. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, um, not a recommendation for or against AT&T, but ultimately these, a lot of high dividend stocks could be traps. Yeah. And be careful. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good way to say it. Okay. Last thing I had uh, was try to lighten the mood here. It was a fun article from the Wall Street Journal uh, that talks about which used car, which used car models have increased the most in price over the past year. This is going to be interesting. Yeah. So is my Honda Odyssey on the list. Uh, no, it's not. No, that's a bummer. But another minivan minivan competitor to the Honda Odyssey was number one. Tipped the scales at number one. What was it? The Dodge Grand Caravan was up 69% from January of 21 to January of 22. Are you kidding me? Yep. The second was the Nissan Versa that was up 66%. The Toyota Prius was up 61%. Kia Forte up 58% and the Volvo uh, S60 up 56%. Um, so, you know, in my opinion too, Matt, this, this makes sense, right? There's more demand for those priced cars, right? It's not like there's a higher demand for Audis and BMWs. It's those and, price points. Right, right. So, you know, in this, in, in my opinion, it makes sense, right? Yep. You know? Um, people have more money in their pockets. People are having kids, have families, need that minivan. And I mean, just demographically, you know, after, you know, COVID hit, you got people moving to the suburbs, you got demographics where millennials are having kids and y'all, all of a sudden, you know, it's not as fun to, you know, take your kid and walk three city blocks to go to the park. You want right. to go in your own backyard. Right. Exactly. You know, so all those aspects are playing into this. Yeah. So I just thought that that was that was interesting. I wouldn't have guessed that the Dodge Grand Caravan I would have not was, guessed uh, that. was the highest increase. I didn't in see price. that coming. No, that was not in my bingo card. No, me neither. I'll turn it over to you. All right. Uh, here's what I got this week for the listeners, Mark. First is my topic of the yield curve flattening. OK, so this is a piece from Top Down Charts on February 15th. So I'm going to take a step back and explain what the yield curve is. Yes. So what is the yield curve flattening? So a flattening yield curve may be the result of long term interest rates falling more than short term interest rates or short term rates increasing more than long. A flat yield curve is typically an indication that investors and traders are worried about the macroeconomic outlook. One reason the yield curve may flatten is market participants may be expecting inflation to decrease or the Federal Reserve to raise the federal funds rate in the near term. Right. So just as, as a reminder, you know, you get paid for going out on a time horizon on holding debt. Right. You get rewarded with higher interest rates to lock up your money for a longer period of time. Right. So if you buy a 30 year U.S. 
treasury bond, you're getting in a normal environment, you should be getting paid a higher interest rate than you buying a two year treasury bond. Absolutely. Because you're taking the risk of, in essence, that interest rate's not going to change for 30 years. Right. So when you say the yield curve flattening, you're talking about, you know, one or two things of happening. Long term rates are coming down. Or short-term rates are going up or both. That's right. So there's not much difference between, say, a 2- and a 10-year treasury. Right. Right? And uh, this is not maybe a popular topic right now in the market, but I think it's a real possibility that this yield curve curve continues to flatten. Mm -hmm. Okay? So what kind of prompted me to bring this up today is a chart, uh, again, by Top Down Charts, um, and it shows the sources, uh, B of A Global Fund Management Survey. And it shows a percentage of mutual fund managers that expect yield curve expectations either steepen or flatten. And we're at a point where a lot of these managers are starting to turn and thinking the yield curve is going to flatten. And so here is my two cents on this. While most investors feel interest rates are going to rise, though it's very possible, Mark, I want to introduce this concept. It's going to be interesting once supply chains begin to improve and assuming inflation starts to come in, how many rate rises the Fed will actually have to do. And that might just might be less than what Wall Street is expecting. Mm -hmm. Now, I prepared this before the news flow of Russia, Ukraine. And my perception is that yesterday, people are feeling that this provides a little bit of cover for the Fed. They're still gonna most likely raise interest rates several times this year, but maybe not as quick, Mm -hmm. depending upon how events unfold and how employment numbers unfold and et cetera. But what I'm trying to get at is I think some of these bold, grandiose predictions in January of seven or eight rate rises, though it's possible, I think is becoming more and more unlikely and the market would welcome that. Yeah, I think I think you're right on on point there. Um yeah, I mean, the yield curve has been flattening for a little while now. So there's a lot of factors that go into it, right? It's not just like that you can look at one thing and be like, you know, yield curve is going to flatten and then invert, which means short-term rates are higher than long-term rates, and that's not good. <laughs> that's, a not, that's not a good factor. Right? That's right. one of the economic indicators, I think, and don't quote me on this, I think has predicted – every forthcoming recession. Yes. Not Within, timing, but it's preceded every recession, right? Yes. Yes. Spe- specifically, the, the two-year treasury yielding more than the 10-year treasury. US exactly. Debt, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. All right. So my next kind of theme I want to explain to our viewers and listeners is liquidity. Okay. So, um, a big problem in the market in especially February, but also parts of January that no one's really talking about is liquidity. Mm-hmm. Now, there was a tweet by uh, a trader I follow. You, you got to 
my, 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 my traders I follow, they're great, man. <laughs> this one is fading rallies mm -hmm. at fading rallies. He posted this on February 17th. This trader has over 28,000 followers, okay. right? So this uh, was what was written and he had a chart from his Bloomberg terminal that he that he posted with it. Okay. He said, equity market liquidity has absolutely collapsed. Markets entered a new volatility regime following the volume geddon. Evaporating liquidity reflects this. Volatility is expanding, and this is just the systematics pulling. Bids are vanishing, and real deleveraging will trigger feedback loops. So mm -hmm. let me kind of explain what that means. Mm -hmm. Okay, There has been a lot less volumes in the market. Less volumes and less liquidity is going to cause more volatility because it would be no different that if you had people, you know, at an auction and most people were were bidding on something, you're going to have more pr true price discovery. The more people that are buying and selling something, in my opinion, you have really true price discovery involved with it. Mm -hmm. When you have less people, people can sit there and say, well, I I'm not going to pay that price. I'm only willing if the stock's trading at $10, I'm only paying nine for that. Mm -hmm. And when you have that lack of buying and sellers in the market, it's going to make the bid ask spread what someone's willing to sell it for and what someone's willing to buy it for. Those are going to expand and that's going to cause volatility to really go up. And I think what you've really had in February and March, plainly put, is you've had a buyer strike. You've had a lot of sellers, not a lot of buyers, causing these prices to come in. And it doesn't necessarily mean that these stocks are truly reflecting the underlying fundamentals in the name. Mm -hmm. And so I want to point this out that volatility is caused a lot by the lack of liquidity. And remember, this could happen to the upside. So if and when the market turns in the short term, and you have a lack of sellers and a lot of buyers, you could have some pretty violent gaps. Mm -hmm. And I just want to throw this out there for people that are attempting to time. I'm out of the market. I'm going to get back in when things are better. Just be aware that you could have some pretty violent up days in this market. Yeah. And another thing that I'll you know throw in the feather of the cap of people that or like you guys are always rah rah. This is concerning, right? When there's liquidity crunches, it's very concerning. It's not good. But the the other thing I will say is, you know, I'd like to see this chart on like a twenty year basis because this only goes back to twenty seventeen. Correct. And since twenty seventeen, we've been in a, a declining uh, liquidity environment, right? But returns have been fine since then on average right so i'm curious to see what this looks like on like a 20-year chart because liquidity has been decreasing for the past five or six years and returns have been fine yeah now is that signaling that something in a couple of years is coming that's big maybe i don't know um but you know it's it's concerning when there's not there's a there's a heavy imbalance of buyers and sellers. That's not good for market operations. It's not. And again, just like I said, you've had, in essence, a buyer's strike year to date. You could have the opposite, a seller's strike 
in essence, it's really going to cause prices to go up hypothetically in my example, that's not a healthy market. Mm-mm. I don't like to see that. No. Okay. No. So it is something that we watch closely, but I think it explains why the market had some of the movements it had in January and February is the volumes aren't there. You don't have really have true price discovery during the day and it's causing a lot of volatility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the next thing I have is market sentiment. So this was a post by Lawrence Sauter um, and he, he posted this tweet and the date of the tweet was last week. It was last week. So market mood, he says, To borrow a term, investors are now convinced that the stock market has decided to invade into bear market territory. Interesting to note how rare it is for bullish sentiment to drop this low. And he put this is a combination of monthly averages of the American investors uh, survey, individual investors, and another uh, actual sentiment survey. The reason I'm showing this and this chart will be in our show notes these, thin, these things tend to be contrarian indicators. When people are this bearish and positioned this bearish within their portfolio, that's typically, you know, the selling's been done. Mm-hmm. So when you at the beginning of the podcast were discussing that, you know, if some of the events that you're seeing today is going to want you to emotionally take action, statistically, a lot of that's probably baked into prices as you and I were discussing. And this is one of those type of indicators that if people are really that bearish, they've already sold, they've already positioned appropriately, they've hedged. And it means a lot of that carnage on a short term basis could be priced in or overly priced into those names. Right. I like watching sentiment. It's very bearish right now. I mean, the correction we've had, it feels in the marketplace. Feels a lot lot worse. worse. It feels a lot worse. I mean, Mark. 10 to 15% corrections, they're not abnormal. No. In the mere fact the last couple of years we haven't had them as frequent makes it feel worse. Mm-hmm. Anything you want to add to that? No, it's just that's what I've been telling a lot of people is it feels, you know, it feels a lot worse than it is because these things have, these sell offs have happened less and less frequently as opposed to 10 years ago where it happened a couple of times per year. People just were more the, used to it. Right, right, right. So it just, like anything with markets, people have a very short memory when it comes to volatility, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just it's a part of human nature. Yeah. Right? It's, you know, to a certain extent, you can't control it. But but yeah, but just be mindful that, you know, and I think it feels worse because it's like it all it's coming right in the first two months of the year. So everyone's like, oh, 2022 is shot. It's going to be a horrible year. Yep. But again, compare it to March of 2020. No one in their right minds thought. The market was going to end positive that year. Yes. When markets were down 25, 30% at their low point, everyone was like, there's no way this thing finishes in the green. It's exactly what happened. And it did. So. Well, as we kind of rounded out, um, uh, Taylor Ledbetter is going to be our guest for the financial planning topic of the week here in a moment. Anything you kind of want to end on your, your yourself before we transition to that segment? No, I just think that, you know, during these times, it's normal to have certain feelings about your investment portfolio and having the urge to uh, sell and go to cash because that's a take safety some action. net. Um, but 
you know, I think you need to to check the emotion at the door and know that, you know, you have a, a long-term game plan. This stuff happens and to enjoy the long-term above average returns that investors do in the publicly traded markets, we have to go through times like this. And, um, you know, this, this isn't going to be the last time this happens. You know, this is going to happen again. Don't know when, don't know how long it's going to be. Uh, but this stuff happens. Um, and we just got to be patient with it. Well put. I have nothing to add to that. Okay. Well, Mark, I'm going to bop out of here and let Taylor come and uh, talk about the financial planning topic of the week. All right, Mark. We'll see you next week. All right, listeners. Uh, our guest this week uh, is Taylor Ledbetter. Taylor has provided our financial planning topic of the week the previous two weeks. And uh, we've garnered a good amount of feedback, very positive feedback, Taylor, from uh, some of the topics that you've been covering. And here at the firm, you handle all of our financial planning and paraplanning work. So, you know, as clients need retirement projections, as an example, this is a lot of stuff that you do on a day to day basis for our client base. So I think it's very appropriate that you share these topics. So what have you selected this week for listeners? Yeah, so this week I kind of want to continue on with my tax trend. Okay. But instead apply the capital gains rates to real estate instead of investments. Like I like covering. that. Okay. Yeah, and I'm also going to touch a little bit on what's called a light kind exchange. I don't think that's a term that's commonly used, so yeah. I thought it would be a good education moment. Let's do this. So when you sell a home, the IRS allows you to exclude a certain amount of that gain. But to qualify, you must have owned and lived in your home for two out of the five years prior to the sale date. Got it. So those exclusion amounts are 250000 if you're single and 500000 if you're married filing joint. Got it. So if it's anything in excess of that. Yes, correct. And I have an example to go over as well. Okay. So if you bought a home 10 years ago for $200,000 and you sold it today for $800,000, you would have a $600,000 gain. Now, if you're married filing joint, $500,000 of that gain will not be subject to the capital gain tax as long as you meet those qualifications of living in the home and owning the home yeah. for that two-year time frame. Got it. So there are a few factors that would disqualify you from this exclusion, and those include if the house was not your primary residence, so if it was a vacation home, for Got example. It. You owned and lived in that property for less than the two years, in that five-year period I mentioned before. Okay. Um, you don't qualify if you claimed this exclusion on another home in a two-year period. So say you sold a home about a year ago and now you're selling another one. Yes. You, you can't qualify twice. <laughs> Got it. So you can only do that every two years. Correct. Okay. Yep. Um, you also don't qualify for this exclusion if you bought the house through a like-kind exchange in the past five years. Okay. Yep. Have you heard of a like-kind exchange I think before? I know a little bit about it, but mm -hmm. I would be, I'd be speculating on the exact details. Yeah. I, so I actually did a scenario recently for a client with a like-kind exchange, and okay. I thought it was really interesting. 
um, it can get pretty detailed. So I'll try to keep it generic because you know how these things can be Oh, yeah, sometimes. there's a lot so, of nuances, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of details. Yeah, so a like-kind exchange is used when somebody wants to sell an asset and acquire a similar one of equal or greater value, and this defers the capital gains tax. So you're basically selling a piece of property, acquiring a new one that's very similar, mm-hmm. and it allows you to avoid that tax. So it'd be like selling one commercial building and buying another commercial building. Correct. And I think it's important to note that taxes under this exchange are deferred. They're not eliminated. That's a big point. Yeah. So eventually you will have some, to yeah, pay that tax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to pay the piper at some mm-hmm. point. Now, here's the big catch. Any real estate except for your personal residence is considered like kind to any other real estate. So you can't use your personal residence in this kind of exchange. It has to be investment oriented Correct. properties. Some kind of rental or maybe even a vacation home because that's not considered your primary property. Got it. So there are a few considerations to keep in mind to ensure that you don't have that tax liability upon the sale of the asset. So first, as I just mentioned, the asset sold must be an investment property, cannot be a personal residence. Um, The asset being purchased with the proceeds must be in the same asset class, which we mentioned as well. Yeah, it sounds like you can't go commercial to industrial or industrial to residential. Correct. Yep. Um, Now, this one is really interesting. The proceeds from the sale must be used to purchase the next asset within 180 days. That's key. Yes. And Mm -hmm. and in the real estate world, that's not exactly a lot of time. No, no, not at all. And you also have to identify that property or asset within 45 days. Uh, Okay. Mm -hmm. So then, all right, this has to be thought out. You can't just try to do this on the back end to save taxes. No, there's a lot of um, kickers to it. (laughs) All right. And again, these are not, that's not a lot of time in the real estate world. No. I know, Mm -hmm. I know recently, Taylor, that Uh, timelines have really gone up as we have more cash buyers in the market, supply has dwindled. But, you know, things will revert back. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's not a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah, You really got to plan this out. Oh, yeah. And I think in a time like this, where the housing market has been crazy over Mm -hmm. the past few months, doing this kind of exchange. Oh, my gosh, it'd be so hard. (laughs) Wouldn't it be the best idea? Because what happens if that property falls through? What happens? You have a huge gain on your hands. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. you got to think about all that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, So just to kind of recap over the advantages and disadvantages, um, like I said, no taxable event as long as the asset is being replaced within the same asset class. Mm -hmm. This one's really interesting. The IRS sets no limit on how often you can do a 1031 exchange. They don't. Which can be a little confusing because when I mentioned the exclusion part of it, you can only do one 1031 exchange in a five-year period to qualify for that exclusion on the sale of a home. Yes. But when it comes solely to like-kind exchanges, there's no limit. Doesn't apply. Yeah. Um, But this allows money that you would have used to pay taxes to be reinvested into 
more property. Interesting. I do mm-hmm. know that there's been some criticism, um, you know, in society in general, because this is this has gotten, I think, some publicity um, that you can move from one property to another, and, a, and obviously the, the intricacies that you mentioned, but mm-hmm. kick the can on taxes. Mm-hmm. I'll be curious if at some point any sort of legislation has changed down the road that maybe starts to limit the frequency of this. You can only yeah. do this once every five years or mm-hmm. once every 10 years or it'll be interesting. Yeah, I, I was when I read that, I was really surprised that the IRS had no limit on it. So. That's crazy. OK, um, this last point is actually interesting, too. Since capital gain taxes are deferred, so are losses. All losses within a like-kind exchange must be carried forward. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's a big point. Which makes a lot of sense, but that never came to my mind until I was doing some research about it. No. So let's kind of give like a a hypothetical on this. Let's say in the early 2000s, um, and it'll be a full kind of real estate cycle, you know, things were gangbusters. So let's say someone exchanged a property multiple times, exchanged the last one in 06, and let's say that that exchange value was 500,000. Mm-hmm. And let's say that they're carrying an unrealized gain of 300. Mm-hmm. 07, 08, real estate correction comes into play. They go to sell that property, and all of a sudden the property is only worth 100,000. They have to roll that loss forward. Mm-hmm. They can't realize it. Yep, as long as it's a like kind exchange. Wow, yeah. that's something that, that, that's notable. Yeah, no, that that's why I included this um, this in here because I just thought that was so interesting. I mean, you it makes sense as you does. kind of indicated a, a second ago. Mm-hmm. It makes sense why they do it, but that's something that's probably glazed over, and that's a very mm-hmm. key point. It is. It is definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, those are all the advantages and disadvantages that I had regarding the like kind exchange. But, you know, I only heard this term a couple times, maybe while, yeah. while being, you know, at the practice. And See, I generically knew it had to be a same type property. And what mm-hmm. I was not educated on is all the other details you mm-hmm. mentioned. Yeah. Right? I think one of the biggest factors is the time frame that this has to be that's, done. That's that's tight. That's that probably is, that, a make or break for that most is, people. That's, that, that, those are aggressive timelines. Yeah. 45 days to identify, 180 <laughs> to close, especially like in this environment, mm-hmm. right? You know, because not all these transactions are going to be done on a purely cash basis. Mm-hmm. And with underwriting requirements where they're at post great financial crisis, they're they're not easy. And all of a sudden, you know, it takes, okay, it's going to get delayed. We need another appraisal or we need this. And you're getting yeah. close to that 180. That that's that could be dicey. I feel like a lot of them may just fall through. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> During the process. That's a really good topic this week, Taylor. Yeah. I, I appreciate I, I, you bringing that up. Yeah. I, I, I enjoyed looking into it and, you know, I'm continuing the tax trend, but just wanted to focus on a different area. Love it. Well, Taylor, you've been doing a great job with our financial planning topic of the week. I know we'll definitely have you back for more in the future. 
response from our listeners has been great. <laughs> so thank you for you putting in the time and effort to prepare for today. Oh, yeah, no problem. All right, listeners, we'll be back next week with another episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. It'll be episode 139 next week. We hope you have a great weekend and we'll be talking to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.